Well, as I'm sure you are well aware, unless you've been hiding somewhere, uh, there's a lot of talk about freedom in our time. Coming from all directions, meaning all sorts of things by that word. At surface level, depending on the issue, everybody wants some version of what they call freedom, at least concerning the issues that are near and dear to them. But I want to ask this morning, do we really love freedom as much as we say that we do? I mean, freedom can be awfully scary. At least that is what Paul tells us this morning. He is willing to say that most of us are afraid of our freedoms. At least the freedoms that are in view in this text that presents itself in Galatians, the freedom that grace itself supplies every believer, Paul says, for whatever reason, we're awfully afraid of that sort of freedom. I mean, what if we really believed that grace set us free? What would that mean? I mean what would it even look like? I mean, what if you believed, or maybe put it this way, what if your spouse believed in grace? I mean, not for you, you'd be okay with that. Uh, but what if they believed in grace for themselves? I mean, think about it. What if your spouse believed that God loved them fully, unconditionally, exactly the way that they are at this minute, before they changed anything at all, that God was totally and completely satisfied with them? Would that be a positive or a negative thing in your book? <laughs> I mean, if they believe that God really forgave them for everything, I mean, fully absolved and cast forever into the sea of his forgetfulness, never to be mentioned again by him to them, believed that God wholly loved and accepted, in fact, delighted in them, that God thinks they're great with no accusation hanging over their life at all. I mean, would that make you feel relieved or afraid. <laughs> what about your teenage child? I mean, to put it a little more uh, tersely, freedom can be a scary thing. We don't like it. Often we don't even want it, no matter uh, how much we protest in the country saying that we do. I mean, if people felt that liberated, that free, I mean, wouldn't they just go wild? Wouldn't the wheels fall off? I mean, freedom, yes, but not too much, not without some serious qualifiers or at least some limitations. And the reason we think that way is, I mean, we know who we are. We know of the darkness that lingers within us, what we might do with too much freedom, and so we're deathly afraid of it, uh, especially in the lives of others that have some impact on our life and our way of being. And so we gravitate instead toward muting freedom just a little bit. Free in Christ, yes, but you still need to, or it doesn't mean that you can just, you know, there has to be some kind of qualifying statement, lest everyone just go crazy. And it's why we love, oddly to our own detriment, teaching that tells us what to do and how to do it and the ills of the world, as well as ourselves, but not too much. I mean, it makes us feel safe to know that there are fences I mean, even if we ourselves have hopped over those fences numerous times in this week alone, we like to know that there are limits. We need to be careful. What's well, interesting, Paul agrees. He does agree we need to be careful, but he would say we need to be careful to stay free 
That that is where the danger lies and not the other way around. It's not that we enjoy our freedom too much or that we understand it too well. He says we understand it far too little and our actual danger is putting our freedom aside for a slavery that cannot and will not help. So the first thing we want to see this morning is that we were saved for freedom. You'll notice that Paul begins with a somewhat ironic statement, for freedom Christ has set you free. I mean, somewhat of a tautology. And he's saying it somewhat tongue-in-cheek, there's no doubt. He's asking, do you guys have any idea why Jesus released you from slavery unto freedom? Any idea what, you, what state of being you might want to inhabit? He says, it's so that you wouldn't be slaves, but instead so that you would be free. Did you know that that's why Christ set you free? But of course, what is freedom for Paul in this context? Paul is not talking about our civil liberties here. Uh, Luther has a wonderful introduction in this text, and he goes into talking about how you know, the, the liberties that are often afforded by the state, depending on how uh, righteous your leadership is, says those are wonderful, but that's not what Paul has in mind. And surely, even the Galatians as Christians in this current society would have a lot of limitations on their personal liberties. He isn't talking about freedom of speech or the right of protest or the right to bear arms, but he's also not talking about utter human autonomy or personal freedom either. This isn't the, it's my life, I can do what I want. It's my mind, I can think what I want speech. You know, he's not quoting the animals here. And it's oftentimes when we hear the word freedom in our culture, it's one of these two ways that it's being spoken of. I mean, even this week, of course, freedom was the topic du jour. But of course, whose freedoms are in view is often the question. But for Paul, he's talking about the freedom that comes from Christ's work on our behalf. And in particular, freedom from the accusation against us that causes condemnation. We have been set free, according to Paul in this whole book, and as we'll see as we go on, from God's judgment, that judgment that was shown to us by the law. He's saying you were formerly in bondage to to the law, And its voice of accusation that would constantly tell you, judgment's coming and you don't measure up. It says you've been freed from sin because of Christ's work. And with sin, of course, that accusation that comes from your own conscience and guilt. You've been freed from the death that's the result of your sin. And from the powers of hell itself. None of these, Paul says, has the right to accuse you any longer. Those are no longer things that can hold you in bondage, that can tie you up and uh, let you uh, live in a certain amount of fear and trepidation. None can utter a word of condemnation to you. We are free from God's anger forever. I mean, He is not mad at you anymore at all. Paul says, don't you see, Jesus came so that you might be free, and the one whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And that is good news. But Paul says, as good as that news is, we often turn it on its head. So notice what he says next is that if we're saved for freedom, then we're in danger of submitting to slavery. In verse 1, he says, the opposite of this freedom is to submit again to the yoke of slavery. 
Well, it'll become really clear what he's talking about as the text goes on, but that, that term, the yoke of slavery, is a term that those who are in the know, especially the Judaizers who were coming to uh, convince the Galatians to be under the law of Moses again, that they would know well, because it was a term that the rabbis used to speak of the law. The law was a yoke that one was to put on themselves to guide them. But notice Paul adds a couple uh, descriptive words. It's a yoke of slavery. That's not a way any rabbi would have ever spoken about it before. Uh, and he says, I agree with the, modifier, the, the, the metaphor that it's a yoke as long as we have this one qualifier. It is a yoke that will enslave you. Notice in verse 2 he says, you know, what's he going on about? I mean, for the first time in Galatians, we hear directly from Paul a very particular situation that is before them. We've heard that somehow the law is being, you know, uh, ushered into the church and that it's, you know, sneaking into the way that people are doing uh, their own piety. But he tells us directly here for the first time, what the Judaizers are suggesting that the church do is that they simply be circumcised in order to be true and full sons of Abraham. You have done well thus far. You've believed in Jesus. That's good. You followed what the apostles have said. All you have to do now to be completely in the household of faith, to be sure that on the last day you will stand righteous before God, is become a true Jew, a true son of Abraham through circumcision. You started well. Just add this one thing. And Paul, you'll notice, pleading through both his apostolic authority. You notice he goes into the first person, I, Paul, say to you. That, that has uh, two effects. I, the apostle of our Lord, Paul. But, but Paul, the one that you know, your father in the faith, your brother in the Lord, Paul is speaking to you. Hear what I'm saying. And so he makes this personal plea, hoping that they will hear him. And sympathize as he, uh, you know, in one sense is trying to uh, arrest their sympathies by his personal pleading. I mean, you see this even in pastoral ministry. We had a gentleman in our midst uh, for some time, a very close friend of mine, who, you know, ended up uh, walking away from the faith. And, you know, you go through uh, the steps of pastoral counsel and so forth. And I remember our last conversation, I said, I'm not speaking to you. As your pastor, I'm pleading with you as your friend. You know, don't do this. And that's what Paul is doing here. He says, this is so serious, I'm pleading with you. It's me, Paul, hear what I'm saying. And notice, for him it's deadly. He clearly states that this addition of circumcision is no small thing. A, a little mistake that maybe, you know, may leave you in pain for a few days and, you know, it's just a, it's just a mulligan, oh well. Uh, you, you did things wrong. He says, if you add this one thing, you subtract everything else that you already had. Jesus will be of absolutely no benefit to you, he says. He will have zero benefit in your Christian walk. Notice these parallel warnings. If circumcised Christ is of no benefit, you will need to keep the whole of the law and you will be cut off from grace. It sounds like it's a pretty big deal. That you lose Jesus, you lose grace, but what you get, your reward, you've gained the obligation to keep the whole of the law. And he says, and because you get that obligation, because once you are circumcised, you're obligated to keep the whole law, you are now enslaved to the law, which I've already told you will lead you to a curse, Paul says. It's interesting, isn't it, for Paul, 
in this topic of circumcision, you'll notice if you read the entire New Testament, sometimes for Paul, circumcision is just adiaphora. It just doesn't matter one way or the other. You know, for Timothy to be circumcised or, or something to that effect, you know, uh, it's not a big deal. You can or you can't. You know, think about our own culture, uh, whether you agree or disagree. In, in uh, American culture, normally our, our sons are circumcised for what at least some have argued is for health reasons. Paul would say, I don't, I don't care about that. That means nothing to me. But for them, it wasn't a matter of no consequence, because notice what he says. He says in the second clause, the reason why it's such a big deal you who would be justified by the law. So notice for them to be circumcised is equated with what is necessary in order for them to be justified. They have been told by those who have snuck into the church, you need to do this to be found fully righteous on the last day. And if you don't do this, then you're not quite fully in Christ like we are in Christ. And Paul says, if you take on circumcision at all as an addition to your salvation or necessary for your standing in Jesus, he says, you lose everything as far as salvation is concerned. Paul says, it's not just, hey, good start, do this and you'll be in. He says, that's not how the law works. He says, those who would try to tempt you to this, they're lying to you about how the law actually functions. You don't get just play to your strengths as far as the law is concerned. So notice, they're coming in and they're probably not saying, hey, let's go read meticulously all the 613 laws of the Old Testament. They're probably saying things like, let's just keep the Jewish calendar and be circumcised and maybe some of the dietary laws and Jesus, that's enough. You know, they're probably not keeping the entire strictness of the law. But Paul says, you don't get to cherry pick as far as the law is concerned. If you put on circumcision because you want to be under the law, you get everything that goes with it, every single commandment of God, and it must be kept perfectly all the time until the end of your days. We often do this with the law. Uh, we look at our abilities, and as long as those are in line with God's law, we really like those things, and we get really irate when other people don't do the things we do, you know. If we're hard workers, you know, if God's given us uh, that grace, maybe we've had a lot of self-discipline and we were raised in a home where you're up from, you know, early and work till late. And, you know, what becomes a really big deal to you as far as the law is concerned is the law talks about lazy people and being lazy is bad. I mean, you might have a short temper and you might be grumpy and you might treat people poorly, but at least you're not lazy. We all do that with the law. We say, well, these are the things I can do. Therefore, these are the things that God really, really cares about. And then we ignore the other things that God says that are just as much a part of his moral code as the things that are your strengths. And Paul says, that's just not how the law works. You have to do it all. You have to do it completely. You have to do it for the right reasons. And you can never take a day off. As James said, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. And some may argue, well, it's okay to Paul, you know. The law has within it this built-in atonement system. It knew that we weren't going to keep it perfectly. And so there's animal sacrifice, and we can just... But notice what is happening. If that's how they plan, if they plan to atone for their... Their, their failures at the law by using the law, 
then Christ and his sacrifice on the cross get set to the side and animal sacrifice gets put up as a means to an end. And Paul says, unfortunately, those sacrifices are all gone for the one final sacrifice, the Lamb of God has been slain. And if you go back to the law, you lose him and all that he's done. It's a complete trade, one for the other. Paul looks at these Judaizers as, you know, the 18-year-old the young person in your home. The Judaizers are saying, oh, we're just going to do some circumcision and some of these other things. And Paul says, oh, no, 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 that's, that's not how it works. You want to do the law, you get the whole law. You know how it is. Your, your 18-year-old says, but I'm 18. I'm a grown-up now. And you say, well, okay, yeah, that's fine. You know, here's your phone bill, uh, and here's the rent bill. Uh, and uh, gas is on you. The car you're driving, that's mine. It's in my name, so I'll take that back. Uh, you know, the, old, the adult thing doesn't work. Where I, I, I want to be adult on the things that I want to do, but I don't want the other things that come with it. Paul says, that's not, how, that's not how the law works. You don't get to do the law on the parts that you want. He says, you get it all, and if you take it all, then it's yours, and you must obey it completely. And if you go that route, Jesus will not help on the day of judgment. Because there's two ways of salvation and they are mutually exclusive. You will either do what the law requires. You will either use your effort and perform in such a way that God is pleased with you. Or you will be saved by faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done on your behalf. He says you can't commingle those. You can't say by faith with just a little bit of works. It's one or the other. As the law says, the one who does them shall live by them. And if you start down that road, you have to finish the project or you have to leave that road altogether and place your hope fully on Jesus and what he's already accomplished on, by your, uh, on your behalf. It's not, you know, do your best and Jesus will take care of the rest. Uh, that, that way of Christianity, Paul says, is simply a rejection of Christ in total. Jesus came to save sinners not to assist lawkeepers, not to just strengthen them a little bit so they could, you know, muster up just a little bit of extra strength that they needed to do better than they were doing previously. And that is why he says, if you choose this way, you have fallen from grace. Grace is no longer the basis and foundation of your walk with God. You have chosen effort and achievement, and they are oil and water as far as acceptance with God is concerned. You can be acceptable by God, before God by effort. As long as you do it complete and total and perfectly and never deviate or fail once, you can do that. Or you can reject that way and say, I need Christ who has done it all on my behalf. But they will not commingle. And finally, Paul says, if we need to uh, no longer submit to slavery, he says, what we do need to do is stand in freedom. Paul's exhortation to begin his imperative section, his commandments, you know, he's going to start telling us what the Christian life looks like. Now that he said, here's what God has done, he's going to say, God has done all these things. How do we live now? And his first commandment is, don't do something, just stand there. That's the commandment. Stand firm in the grace that's been given to you in Christ, in the freedom that Christ has afforded you. By his mercy to you. Since Christ has set you free, 
Be free. And stay there. Don't move from there. Don't pick a different way of religion. The slavish way to righteousness, that doing way, has already been accomplished through Christ and his obedience to the whole of the law. And so notice, if you want to be free, if you want the free man's way to righteousness, Paul defines it for us right here. By the Spirit, through faith. By the Spirit, through faith. Notice what he says in those first verses. By you, through obedience to the law. That's one way. Or by the Spirit, through faith, leaving no room for partial efforts or best attempts. He says, by the Spirit, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We're eagerly waiting for what we hope for. And of course, this is biblical hope, not that, boy, I sure hope this happens kind of hope, but because it is future, because we don't possess it by sight now, it's in this category that Paul often uses called hope. We don't fully possess it by sight, so it's something that's ours, we possess it, but we possess it in a manner that we can't see it and tangibly take hold of it yet. It's a future reality. We're waiting to see it. Or what the author of Hebrews calls a sure and certain hope, that anchor of our souls, even Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his resurrection. So our hope for Paul is future, uh, but it's present to us now because Christ is our hope. He's our righteousness, he's our resurrection, and he is right now in the very presence of God. And one day, we will possess that by sight at the resurrection. We will see him, and we will be like him. So he says, we confidently wait to see what we already possess and is already waiting for us, which is already ours. Notice the means by which we wait. What is our posture? By faith. Faith is how we take hold of Jesus. You know, how, do you, how does one get saved? How does one come into right standing before God? You trust in Jesus Christ. But how does one remain? What is he supposed to do all the days of his life? What's the next action after you believe? You believe in Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's how you will attain what we wait for on the last day. It is by faith from first to last. I mean, outward law obedience for Paul shows a righteousness by sight. We can see that sort of righteousness. But our righteousness now is by faith. It's hidden in hope. But notice the hope of righteousness. That's a phrase that may cause some of you some consternation. Probably should. It's almost like we don't have righteousness yet. We're just hoping for it. Are we not righteous already? I mean, isn't that the whole argument of the book so far in Galatians, that Jesus has already made us right before God? But notice for, for Paul, justification, that category where God pronounces us as holy and vindicated, it's a last day's doctrine. It's, it's a doctrine that belongs to the end of all things. Because what justification is, is the day that you walk before God, and he pronounces before the whole watching world, this person is righteous in my sight. Therefore, enter, well done, good and faithful servant. It is a future reality. What makes it so precious to us 
is that Jesus, of course, has already been justified. At Jesus' resurrection from the dead, God announced to the whole world, this one is righteous in my sight. The grave cannot hold him because he has done no wrong. He is faithful. And because of his faithfulness, he enters into the kingdom. He even right now sits at the right hand of God, holy and worthy and utterly accepted. And when you see Jesus right now at the right hand of God and you see him in all of his righteousness, Paul's saying, you see your righteousness. And that's why it's by faith, is because it's possessed already. He's already been vindicated, and guess what? That is your vindication. How do you know God's going to say, I accept you on the last day? Because he already said it. Not the day you got saved. The day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That is your justification. Your justification is as sure as Jesus is because it is his. Your life is completely hidden in Christ with God. The problem with that, of course, is we don't see Jesus yet face to face. So we are righteous now by faith. But I know you, and you are not righteous by sight. (laughs) And you know me. I'm pretty close. No. (laughs) That, of course, awaits the resurrection when we see Jesus and we are like him because we see him as he is. By sight right now, we are simulustus et peccator. We are just and sinner at the same time. We are sinners by sight. If you know someone... You know a sinner. If you know yourself, you know a sinner. You've never met someone that's not in that category. But if we believe in Jesus, then we are also righteous. But not necessarily by sight. (laughs) It's by faith. But there's going to come a day at the resurrection when those two things are one. When you are not only righteous by faith, but everything you do is righteous. Everything that people see in you is righteousness because you will look like Jesus himself. And that is why circumcision or uncircumcision don't matter one iota because Jesus is our righteousness completely. Nothing, not one iota of a thing that we do here is our righteousness on that last day. The only thing that counts, Paul says, is faith working through love. And here we say, finally, finally something about our living and our active faith and the loving works that it produces, which is true. Faith in its active sense does produce good works. There is no doubt about that. And we will see that in the weeks to come. But that's not what Paul is saying here. I don't mean to steal one of your favorite Bible verses, but here we go. After contrasting faith in someone outside of us without any effort in this age, do you think Paul ends his whole argument by saying, see what matters is a loving, working, active faith? Notice this verse has a parallel that's coming up in chapter 6. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Somehow for Paul... Faith working through love and a new creation are synonymous. 
Well, who is active in new creation? God alone, of course, but who is active in creating faith in us? It is also God alone. This verse should be read in the passive. It is faith worked in us by God based on his love. We read it in the active sense, faith worked by us showing love itself, but it's faith worked in us by God because of his love for us, which Paul says elsewhere, you have been saved by grace through faith, which is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Even our faith with which we take hold of the righteous Christ who does all of our living for us, even that faith is supplied by Christ because he loves us. The one who calls light out of darkness has shown in our hearts. That's new creation language. It is sourced in the very love of God itself. God creates faith in you because God loves you. And he wanted to. As Paul says, in love he predestined us. He says again in chapter 2, because of the great love with which he loved us, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, did what? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God so loved you that he sent his only son. The son so loved you that he laid down his life for his friends. The Spirit so loved you that He's shown the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit into your hearts and has been granted to you as a guarantee. And Paul would say, stand in that love. Don't move from there. Don't add anything to it. Don't gum it up by trying to do something to give God a good reason to love you. He had no good reason to begin with and you're not going to add one as time goes on. Your confidence to stand comes from the fact that Christ loved you Christ lived for you. Christ died for you. He is risen for you. Christ was vindicated before the watching world in your place. And he now sits as an anchor for you, interceding. What is it you think you can add to that? I mean, what are you going to do that's going to jog God's memory and say, that's it. That's better. What sort of obedience could we offer that would give you more confidence than what Christ has already done in your stead? In fact, Paul says, as soon as you try to add, it's undone. It's all or nothing. People of God, Christ has set you free. And your liberty is in him. You are wholly accepted now. You live an utterly non-accused existence. You are free. Because of him, cling to nothing else. Let's pray.